The Bizarre Cast contains adult themes and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings, everybody, for another edition of The Bizarre Cast. And today, I will be kicking back with Stephen Kick and going for a deep dive into Night Dive Studios as he is their commander in chief the ceo welcome Stephen, to the show how are you today hey thank you i'm, I'm doing really good <laughs> i never never get tired of the kick jokes i know i was going to put a, a few one or two more in and i, I said i'd refrain because <laughs> you might be offended <laughs> but here we are today so Stephen, for those who mightn't know who you are in the audience uh, going down a bit of a gaming path the last couple of weeks uh would you like to enlighten the audience and tell us a little bit about yourself yeah sure so basically my my gaming life kind of began in earnest probably in 1998 when half-life came out and it shipped with uh, the gold source engine and, and the hammer tools to build your own levels and uh, that was kind of my gateway drug into you know wanting to be a part of the industry so when it was time to go to college, I chose a art school out in San Francisco that had a new game art and design degree program, uh, which I basically just jumped at the opportunity for. And when I graduated, I was kind of the top of the class on the character art side of things. And so that's kind of where my, my path began was um, getting jobs in the industry um, at indie studios and then at Sony online entertainment as a character artist, um, before eventually kind of getting burned out and wanting to make my own games. So, uh, at the time I, I quit and, uh, my girlfriend and I, who was also a character artist at Sony, we got into our Honda civic and, um, in San Diego. And we ended up just driving across the border into Tijuana and, uh, disappearing into Mexico and Central America for about 10 months. That sounds and, great. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a trip of a lifetime. We drove over 10,000 miles, uh, went to every country in, in Central America, just unbelievably beautiful, beautiful trip. So during that time that we were traveling, I brought a netbook and I loaded it up with some classic games like, uh, Full Throttle, Fallout 2, Grim Fandango, uh, pretty much all my favorite games uh, that, that initially inspired me to want to be in the industry. And uh, one night when I, when I was in Guatemala, I tried to boot up System Shock 2 and I uh, couldn't get it running. So I went to goodoldgames.com thinking that it was going to be there and quickly discovered that it wasn't available. So I immediately started diving and searching through old records on the internet, uh, using the Wayback Machine to find interviews with some of the original creators to, to try to figure out, you know, what happened to Looking Glass? Where did the rights end up? And, and how come this game that's, you know, widely considered to be one of the greatest of all time isn't available, you know, for purchase? And my search led me to a insurance company in the Midwest called Star Insurance Company. And they had basically loaned looking glass money during their tenure. And when they went bankrupt, uh, they defaulted on those loans and, and some of the IP that belonged to looking glass was then transferred to this insurance company. Mm, yeah. So I reached out, 
uh, via email. Uh, you know, I'm still in Guatemala at this point uh, to their legal counsel to, to try to get a better idea of what happened. And they wrote back to me and, and asked me if I was interested in making System Shock 3. <laughs> <laughs> There's still hope. Yeah. Um, so I said, no, well, actually, um, I just want to re-release the first two games. And they wrote back to me and said that nobody nobody had, had approached them with that idea before. And they wanted to know my business plan and, you know, the name of my studio. They wanted, uh, you know, a boilerplate contract. They wanted all this stuff. So I kind of hit up some of my my friends uh, that, that had some knowledge in that area. And kind of by the time I was in Panama and already heading back home, we had like a deal on the table. Um, all I needed was, you know, a large sum of money to pay in advance. And so okay. I went to friends and family and basically said, hey, I've got this opportunity. You know, can you kick me some money? And everybody kind of came through and I paid the advance and signed the paperwork. And I went to GOG.com, you know, with the rights. And uh, they wrote back and said I was full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> so and you proved them wrong. Yeah, I did. Eventually I did. I proved them wrong. And uh, they launched System Shock 2, I think, on Valentine's Day 2013. And um, it just did better than, than I ever could have imagined. And it, and it opened the doors to me basically spending my free time going and, and trying to find other games that, that could be revived in the, in the same manner. Yeah, so just to go a little bit back to the start then, as a character artist, is, that, is there a lot of programming with that? Or did you have to recruit a team to sort of get the older games like ported over initially? What was the initial mm. assembly of the A-team? How did that go? Yeah, well, it didn't happen for quite some time. Uh, there's kind of an interesting story behind System Shock 2 specifically. Basically, on one of the calls with Star Insurance Company, I, I had told them, you know, I've got this team standing by to, to, to start work on this game. Um, and that team consisted of some programmers that I had worked with at Sony. And I hung up the phone. I got on my computer and I had a news alert from Kotaku about System Shock 2. Okay. And I was like, wow, that's really, you know, kind of weird. Uh, what, are, what are the chances? And it turns out that a anonymous modder in France known as Le Corbeau had just released an unofficial patch to System Shock 2 to make it fully compatible on modern systems. Right. And, and you're like, uh-oh. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it was, it was both uh-oh and, oh my God, somebody just, basically did all the work that I was planning to do. And so I downloaded the patch, I tried it out and on the same netbook and, you know, it just booted up instantly and it played beautifully. So I immediately signed up to the, the French forum that this um, individual was a part of. And I tried to reach out to them. I didn't have any luck, but I figured maybe GOG, since they've dealt with modders in the past, they could, you know, ask them for permission or maybe give them a, a, a contract job or, or something. You know, this was almost 10 years ago. I, I didn't really have that uh, much knowledge in terms of the etiquette and protocol, you know, surrounding working with, with modders in the community. Yeah, yeah. And so I sent GOG the build, 
with the patch and i said look this is the story the corbo you know made this he's anonymous i can't get a hold of him but it works you should probably try to figure that out on your end and instead of doing that they just released the game with the patch okay and under, I, was this under night dive at that stage yes it was under night dive and i kind of received a shitstorm on the uh, systemshock.org forums <laughs> for basically you know lifting this guy's work and taking credit for it yeah. Um, so it was this huge misunderstanding that um, even to this day, there's a couple people that will pop out of the woodwork and be like, oh, this guy is such a fraud. He just takes credit for other people's work. And I have to like sit down and explain like, look, you know, I was uh, very new at this. I didn't know the correct way to go about it. I, I had all the best intentions. And, you know, I've since attempted to reach out to Le Corbeau, especially after we announced our enhanced edition of System Shock 2, because, you know, they're the type of people that I look for uh, when hiring for Night Dive. It's people that are able to reverse engineer um, old games or people that can track down source code or port to new engines or, or any of that, because it's a highly specialized skill uh, that requires a, you know, just a, a in-depth knowledge of, of both multiple programming languages and um, renderers and pretty much every conceivable aspect of, of programming a video game. So mm. um, if anybody listening, if you're into that, please uh, reach out to me. <laughs> Did you ever then make your own version of the System Shock 2 or is it still Le Corbeau's version? It is still the Corbo's version, but that's, you know, one of the reasons that we're working on our own is um, so that we can we can support the game on our side, because right now we don't have the source code. We're just working off of the essentially the retail copy with the with the patch that he made. Oh, sure. And yeah. so it's made porting to additional platforms a real nightmare. Uh, because, you know, you really need the source code in order to do a, a native port. So yeah. our Linux build was really broken for a while, and our Mac OS X build was broken because we were using emulators to kind of fake it. Um, and I just was kind of at this point where we had done System Shock 1 Enhanced Edition using the original source code, and we were able to bug fix and add all these great features and widescreen support, and it was just an, a breeze. So I tasked that same team with essentially reverse engineering System Shock 2 and, and doing the same thing and building our own uh, source so that we mm. can do proper ports of, uh, of Shock 2. Yeah, and I mean, is there much backlash that you'd find in the community for purists that are saying, you know, they might, to me, the casual gamer will say, who would say, oh yeah, th this reminds me of how I used to play it, but someone who's really into the game would be like, oh no, but the... I don't know, the view acceleration or the paces, how fast you walk, et cetera, just a little bit off. I can't believe you ruined the game for me. Is there much hmm. of that backlash from the ports that you would put out? Um, in very, very rare cases, um, I would say that like our most notorious release was the first build of blood fresh supply that we put out. Yeah. Because there's a lot of people that are diehard blood fans and they know, you know, 
every conceivable detail about how many particles should fire from this gun, how, you know, how many hit point damage should it do to this particular enemy? Yeah, that's the sort of stuff. Yeah. So we had to go back and we had to address a couple of those issues. And a, and a lot of that actually just stemmed from us not having enough time because that was a contract job that we took from Atari. Sure. And they had a strict time limit on that, which is not usually how we work. We generally will make a deal to work on a game and we'll just say, look, it's going to be done when it's done. Uh, because it has to be as perfect as possible. It has to be as true to the original as as conceivably possible. And yeah. uh, so we we did release a patch for Blood, and I know that the guys would still love to continue working on it. But um, but yeah, we do run into that every once in a while, and uh, System Shock 2 won't hopefully kind of fall into that category. Mm. And in terms of then, you said that was a contract job. What is the selection process then for finding the games? Do people come to you now since you have a bit of chops in the industry or do you seek out, I know the mission statement is that you seek out older, maybe forgotten games forward slash abandonware to re-release. Uh, but what is usually the selection process behind the scenes? Well, at first when we got started, it was kind of the wild west because nobody was really doing what we did with the exception of, of good old games. They were kind of the first company to um, see the value in some of these classic titles, uh, but they were relying mostly on emulators and you know modifying the EXEs to run in 64-bit environments and stuff like that. And that's kind of what we started doing too. We were using DOSBox and ScumVM and basically, I was just trying to get anything that really resonated with me. So games that I had played as a kid that were no longer available. And that's where you get stuff like um, Titanic Adventure Out of Time and Time Lapse, Bad Mojo, some of those really obscure uh, adventure games. Mm. And nobody had really taken the time to approach them because they, you know, they were very obscure and they weren't really going to generate a lot of revenue. But at the time, it was like, I just love this game and I'd love to be able to play it. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna go get it. And so it was kind of easy. And we had some breakout hits like I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Uh, yeah. That was a big one. And Wizardry 6, 7, and 8 were really big. And then everything kind of changed when we had acquired the license for Turok Dinosaur Hunter. Yeah, that was my next question. How did you go about Turok? Because that seems like it was quite popular back in the day at least i knew about it and i never got it for the nintendo because i think it was like you're too young <laughs> yeah but uh how did you how did that end up on your plate um i think what it ended up happening was i had come across a developer uh, whose handle is uh kaiser and he was working on a port of Turok Dinosaur Hunter called Turok EX. Okay. And I was following his work for a while and I was like, wow, this is really cool. Like somebody's actually reverse engineering the code and they're porting it to, to like a new engine that they built from the ground up so that, uh, you know, it's going to be smoother. It's going to be more fun to play. It's going to be kind of how you remember the game as opposed to how it really was. Yeah. And so I was a big Turok fan and been following this project for a while. So I reached out to him and I said, hey, how would you like to come work for me? 
and basically do this EX treatment with, you know, any title that we can get a hold of. And so we hired him. And then I decided that we should probably try to go get the Turok license because he had already more or less started working on it. Yeah. And that led me to uh, DreamWorks. And we got at them at just the right time because it was before they got acquired by NBC Universal. Okay. And they had just acquired the, I think it was called the Classic Media Library, which included Turok's Son of Stone, the comic book IP, which encapsulated yeah. the video game stuff done by Acclaim and Iguana. And I think we went to them and we just said, hey, we're, you know, we'd like to remaster this. We've got some screenshots, you know, of a, of a working prototype. And I didn't expect to get anywhere because... Um, at that point, we were still relatively small. Um, I think I only had like four people working for me at the time. Uh, but they kind of took a risk. They were like, well, it's not, we don't think it's worth anything. And we don't think that, you know, these projections that you're giving us, we don't think you're going to meet them. But, you know, if you can pay this advance, you, you know, go for it. Mm. And so Sam, you know, basically was doing his hobby for work now. And I think we had released a a screenshot or a trailer or a leak or something to that degree. And the original designer Turok reached out to us and said, Hey, I've got the source code. Do you guys want it? Well, that's, that's a godsend. Yeah, absolutely. So he sent it to us and I gave it to Sam and Sam was able to, or Kaiser, he was able to take um, basically all the work that he had done and essentially fact check it with the original to make sure that, it was all acting and all the you know enemies and the behaviors and, yeah. and everything were, were working as intended. Invaluable stuff to get that. Yeah, and it just filled in so many gaps. And we were able to find some really fun things. Um, like there's some behaviors of the dinosaurs that if you're just playing the game, you, you don't see it, but there's stuff going around in the background, if right. that makes sense. Like their, yeah, their yeah. AI logic. Um, and so he was able to basically, you know, port the original Turok to this new EX engine that we would then use for all of our other games. Um, and so, yeah, we released Turok Dinosaur Hunter on, on PC and it was a massive hit. And so DreamWorks said, okay, we'll do the same thing with uh, Turok 2. So we did that. And then we've slowly been kind of porting them out to other consoles. So we did um, Xbox first. Uh, then we did Nintendo Switch, which was fantastic because Turok was, you know, On coming Nintendo, home. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Turok 1 and 2 will be coming to PS4, uh, hopefully by the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah, because it's funny because I'm not a native Australian. So I had to, you know, leave pretty much all the gaming kit back in Ireland. And we just have a Switch now. So that was like my first foray into night dive was getting the doom 64 which i'll, I'll touch mm. on in a minute but then i saw hey i suppose you can you can search obviously by the i think it's by publisher i'm not too sure a developer and i was like hey Turok's on here as well i was like wow <laughs> this is amazing and the fact that doom 64 was on nintendo as well it was like it kind of feels like most of those titles are uh, right at home especially with shadow man as well mm -hmm. um that was definitely one i remember my dad like pretty much shitting his pants 
<laughs> thought it was like so scary back in the day. <laughs> so it's it's kind of I I always try and seek out who like I want to talk to. So I was like, I really enjoyed these games and like let's talk to Stephen about it. It's, it's great to come full circle for myself here. Yeah, that's great, and thank you for your support. I you know we really appreciate that. Um, so to yeah to answer your original question, as soon as we did Turok, that's when other companies started coming to us. Mm. That was kind of our our landmark kind of title because at that point we had something very unique to offer as well, which was the engine that was being built. So that engine is now known as Kex or Kaiser's EX engine is what that stands oh, for. Okay, I was wondering. <clears throat> and um, yep. Yeah, so that's 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 basically it. Um, his engine has powered everything that we've done pretty much since then and that includes uh blood fresh supply doom 64 the upcoming shadow man remaster uh forsaken remastered it's it's our workhorse yes so i suppose i know next to near zero about coding and everything like that seeing as all these games you know you have the length and breadth of nintendo 64 pc everything in between how does it actually work a single engine getting everything to run in it if you could explain <laughs> explain to me like i'm five for the audience too oh my god well i'll try because the the engineers on my team have to explain it like i'm five to me <laughs> explain like i'm two like imagine i'm your son right now <laughs> yeah well um yeah, let me see so so essentially we take the entire original game and and the engine that that ran in and we plug it into our engine and sure. we kind of overwrite some of the original hooks and, and renderer and, and that type of thing from the original and we hook it up to Kex. Yeah. Um, so essentially it's the original game, but it's running in an engine that gives it more capabilities. So like we can add Vulcan support, um, direct 3d if there wasn't any originally open GL uh, rebindable controls, new post-processing effects, new particle systems, um, just little updates that are tasteful so as not to like change the art style or the original appearance too much. Yeah, sort of like better menus and stuff sometimes. Or... Yeah, like, you know, rock solid 60 FPS at 4K on a, you know, Xbox One or whatever. Um, one of the too. Yeah, that helps. Um, like just buttery smooth um, frame rate and responsive controls just do wonders on, you know, N64 era games, uh, especially mm. dual dual analog support, you know, being able to play it with modern control conventions is it's like it's like uh, getting to play it for the first time again. I know I, I need to interject here and tell the man himself my little doom 64 anecdote okay uh, i think you might appreciate it or not so i did buy it back in the day for the nintendo 64 uh, at a second hand shop and i could not play it the controls were absolutely terrible and then <laughs> it came out on the switch and i was like oh my god this is only like five euro so i couldn't say no and as you say it was buttery smooth absolutely amazing to play i finished it from start to finish and it was actually the day I had bought it was the last time I saw somewhat of a mentor of mine, shout out to Dave. And I said, I wonder what Dave is doing. 
So I managed to reconnect with an old friend over Doom 64. So you're you're bringing people together, Stephen, with your games is what I'm trying to say here. Oh, that's great. So yes, giving the quality of life improvements then, you know, you're saying like 4K, 60 frames per second. Uh, first listener question of the day from Keith at Steamy Streamers. What would be the major challenges when porting to different systems sort of all at the same time? What are the main challenges for the team? You mean between like Xbox, PlayStation and Switch? Yeah, because, you know, previously you might hear stuff of like PS3 or 360 that mm. between like the RAM and stuff, it might have a juttery frame rate, etc. Like seeing as these are older games, are you getting as much of those problems? Um, not really, because the engine more or less takes care of that. Sure. When we were so the reason that we had such a staggered release with the first Turok games across all those platforms was because the engine was being built uh, to support those platforms as we got further and further along. Okay. Um, and each platform has specific requirements in terms of like the renderer uh it supports yeah um so i know i'm probably going to get this wrong but just as an example one will require that games run in direct 3d one will require that they run in OpenGL, and then like the last one won't care so you can yeah. you know you can use whatever you want and so we're the reason that we're going to do playstation last is because it had a very specific renderer that it required that wasn't supported at the time in the Kex engine. Right. Um, so um, Doom 64 actually helped out quite a bit with that because when we were brought on by Bethesda to do that, you know, their requirement was it's got to launch on all four of these platforms simultaneously, which we've never done before. Yeah. But luckily because of the work we did on Turok on Xbox and switch, we had that figured out. All that was left was just, getting through um, Sony's particular requirements and then um, building that support into the engine. Mm. Um, yeah, so we, we had to do that pretty quickly, uh, but it worked out well and everything shipped um, on time. And yeah, that ended up being one of our biggest releases ever, just in terms of uh, notoriety and uh, recognition. Yeah, definitely. Like, as I'm saying, uh, it was kind of a bit funny because at the start, uh, when booting up Doom, it was a bit like, oh, I can't even skip this intro. Like, who is this Nightdive Studios? And <laughs> the more I kept seeing the intro with, like, the skull and the helmet, etc., I was like, geez, this is kind of fairly cool. I wonder who these guys are and what have they done? And that led me down the path then of seeing the Turok games and <laughs> following you guys. So it's actually, in one instance... An unskippable intro led me down a great uh, secret garden, you could say. <laughs> yeah, so. um, there's a good story about that too. Uh, if if you ever watch the Doom 64 video by um, uh, Civi, I'm gonna suck it up. Or that uh, maybe it's the, his Doom Eternal video, but he makes a joke that the Kex engine stinger, the Night Dive stinger, the Bethesda stinger, the Zenimax stinger, and the ID stinger all play. And it's like 90 seconds. It's like a minute and a half. <laughs> and the size of those video files is like twice as big as the game itself. <laughs> Brilliant. It just cracks me up. 
Yeah, no, it it is funny in that regard, but it was, I'm glad that we're here now today. But just a follow-on question then with regards that you had to do everything simultaneously for Doom. Uh, from start to finish, from, I don't know whether you were approached or you approached Bethesda, but how much work actually went into the porting? Was it like a 12-month process, six months? Like, what kind of timeframes do you guys do for releases normally? Um, That's a really good question. I mean, every game is different. I will say that we had a bit of a head start with Doom 64 because that was another project that Kaiser had been working on as a hobby uh, before I met him. Right. So he had done some of the groundwork on that already. So it's, you know, the, the time that we spent on it is not really fair to say because there was some development that was done okay. as a, as a fan project beforehand, but it all depends on like if we, what, what resources we have, right? Like, do we have the source code? Are we reverse engineering certain parts? Um, is there a multiplayer? But I would say that now with, you know, the team that we've got, I mean, we could be looking at probably like a year of development if we've got source code and we want to hit all those platforms simultaneously. Right. So it's not too bad. A year of dev work is is a really, really fast turnaround for, I think, the the kind of games that we're putting out. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. And just in regards then, like, you are mostly known for porting, but do you think there's any scope in the future for original titles, or what are your plans in that regard? I, You know, I think that would be kind of the, the crowning achievement of Night Dive is to hopefully be at some point someday where we don't have other projects going on and I can, I can sit the guys down and say, okay, you know, you, you are all experts at these types of games. And I know that you've got some really great ideas. So let's do it. You know, whatever you guys want to make, I will support it. And I'll, you know, basically I'll keep paying your salaries uh, to make something original. And I'm, going to be fully supporting it no matter what it is that you guys do i think that would be a a tremendous opportunity for for everybody involved and uh, really kind of let everybody flex their muscle because i know that uh, kaiser you know before he joined us he was a level designer uh, in the industry for for quite a while so he's got a a really great background uh, of just for design let alone you know programming and, and everything else and then, you know, we've got a team of artists uh, that are are there to support the porting stuff that we do now and to clean up some of the models and some of the textures. And I know that they're fully capable of doing, you know, original work, obviously. So, yeah, I think that would be that would be really fantastic to eventually do that uh, and, and kind of add that support to the Kex engine. So it could be more of a standalone thing as well. Um, yeah its own level editor and its own particle editor and and all that scripting that type of thing yeah because it just reminds me of the recent enough like 3d realms ion fury which is sort of a duke nukem sort of spiritual successor you could say do you think it would be in the realm of older sort of pastiche nostalgia or do you think you'd try and go for a bigger budget sheen or do you think you'll play it safe with the kex engine i think that yeah, the, I think that's a good way to put it. The, I would imagine that something smaller scope like that would be more feasible at first. 
and I assume that they'd probably want to do a spiritual successor to one of their favorite games that we currently don't have the rights to. Yeah. You know, I think it would be really cool. Personally, if we were to do a spiritual successor to Thief, but had some Lovecraftian elements thrown in. Yeah. But, I mean, I'd kind of leave that up to them, but I think that they would feel more comfortable uh, basically making a boomer shooter as they're, you know, lovingly referred to now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course. No, it is funny because that would bring me on to the next listener question from Simon over at thefearmerchant.tv. It was just, what would be your dream game then that you could take the rights to, port it, or even do a sequel? I know you're saying Thief, but if there was any game from the past that you currently can't do or you tried to, what would be that dream game, do you think? Uh, I always feel like when I get asked this question, it's pretty loaded because it's always the same answer. But um, I mean, it's no one lives forever. Just comes right to the top. Okay. And what? what why is that? Well, it's it's just it's kind of my golden goose. It's it's uh, one of my favorite games of all time, and it's I think it's one of the best shooters of all time. It's got one of the best uh, protagonists of all time. It's it's just a shooter from from the golden era of the early to mid two thousands by uh, Monolith, and I know it just means so much to so many people, and it would be uh, just a dream to be able to. Uh, not only bring back the original, but also maybe do a sequel in the same style. Yeah. In this, you know, same uh, technical limitations as well, so that it wouldn't be necessarily like a triple A uh, sequel, but it would be a sequel as if Monolith had still made that particular game in maybe 2008 or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, if that makes sense, I think that would be really fantastic. It'd be like a, the sequel that never was. But that's a, I mean, that's another one that just makes it onto the list of if we can't ever really figure that right situation out, I think a spiritual successor would be a, would be a the the right path to go on. Okay, and has there been? Because I think I remember seeing or hearing something that it was nearly going to happen or it wasn't. Was there some sort of will we, won't we? There was just too many stakeholders, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. Um, it was complicated a couple of years ago, and it's more complicated now because uh, part of the rights were held by 20th Century Fox, which, of course, is now owned by Disney. Yeah. So that just adds another layer of complexity onto things. And then uh, more recently, there were some rumors that WB was looking to sell its interactive division. So they're you know wb owns monolith and i believe that they still have some rights to that game i'm not exactly sure what they are and and that's you know that's the final piece is we've gone to wb we've gone to fox and and there's no record of what they actually own they just know that there's something there Uh, but it would take a lot of lawyer time which is very expensive to kind of plumb the depths and, and see what's there so that they can, you know, make an accurate representation of their rights. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's our biggest issue right now is, it's like, we don't have the financial backing to just basically pay for their lawyers to look and see what they may or may not have. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. 
No, you definitely have to go and make no one exists for eternity or something. The bootleg knockoff. <laughs> yeah, you, well, it'll be, it'll be something like that. <laughs> you can have that uh, title for free. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So I suppose beyond uh, Night Dive, then like you're pulling up and preserving essentially uh, games from 20 to 25 years ago, plus in some instances, what is beyond night dive is there going to be a skydive studios in 20 years time again to preserve your games how's it going to work <laughs> that's great i might i might actually take that one but uh <laughs> do do just make sure to credit me <laughs> that's great that's really great well i mean the idea is that the games that we've ported uh you know we've we've gone to great lengths to to maintain that code so um, hopefully it'll never get to a point where, you know, you can't play night dive games anymore. I mean, I think that would just be the, <laughs> that'd be the craziest thing. Um, but yeah, skydive studios. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It would be some guy up in a balloon, uh, with a skull and a space helmet. I don't know. <laughs> something like that. But yeah. Like, yeah a, would... like a tether or something <laughs> with some oxygen. Yeah. That would be. Yeah, you can definitely have that one. Maybe there'll be some fan art come out for Skydive <laughs> Studios. <laughs> but um, yeah, do you think the way like gaming has gone with the likes of Steam and everything these days that preservation is more on the minds of people? Because um, is one of your guys, is it Demetrius? He does modern vintage gaming. Is he one of your guys? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he was obviously... Uh, a hacker, if you want to call it, like a self-proclaimed hacker. Mm -hmm. um, do you think preservation is just more on the minds of people these days, given that there's so many titles have disappeared? I think so. Um, I mean, if you look at the situation regarding uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, the yeah. Ubisoft uh, side-scroller game, I mean, I think that came out in 2008, somewhere around there. Yeah, and I never got it at the time, even enjoying the demo. <laughs> I'm devastated now. Yeah, um, I actually had bought that, uh, but I don't have the the 360 anymore. Yeah. I yeah. sold that a long time ago, um, so I don't know if it's even still in my account or, or what, but you know, that's a great example. Um, it's been 10 years, and you can't play it, and there's a, a, a huge, very hungry audience for it, and that's just really great to see because I think that... Uh, examples and situations like that are really going to make uh, publishers and developers a lot more aware of um, of preservation and, and needing to um, hold on to assets and code and, and that type of thing so that uh, people can enjoy them again. I, I had learned uh, some, some stories or I had heard some stories not too long ago from um, somebody I had met who uh, kind of specialized in just going to game companies and and trying to collect code so that they could archive it and he said his travels brought him to uh like square enix and um capcom um and some of those uh companies in japan and it was kind of a universal practice over there that once a game was done and it had shipped they would just destroy the code yeah, I can't believe that. I couldn't like, believe I've heard it, it so many times. It's it's crazy that there's so much disregard for the work. 
Yeah, uh, Konami especially was one that I had heard, um, and that's why it was has been so difficult to get um, some of the original Silent Hill games ported. It's because yeah, they're a disaster. I heard all those porting. Even though I don't know anything about porting, I know that they were a disaster for Silent oh, Hill. It's really difficult. I mean, if you're, you know, tasked with um, essentially reverse engineering and partly remaking, you know, one of the most uh, respected, yeah, yeah. I mean, the pressure has got to be just over the top, and um, you know, that was probably another situation where they're like, "We need this out by October of you know next year." Yeah. And um, this goes back to an earlier question, but if we've got the source code, you know, we're looking at like a year plus, but if you have to reverse engineer, you could add on a year or two on top of that. So it it, it becomes um, not insurmountable by any means, but it becomes nebulous and it becomes risky. And it's just... I don't know. It's just uh, you just don't ever want to kind of find yourself in that situation if you can help it. Yeah, because I don't know, even just this week, it's fresh on my mind now. uh, But Nintendo for the 35th anniversary of the Super Mario Brothers, essentially bringing out uh, like remastered and upscaled versions of Super Mario 64, Super Mario Sunshine and Super Mario Galaxy, respectively. But I've already seen rumblings that it's kind of a a piss poor attempt at a preservation that will say for sunshine that it doesn't have the analog trigger support. You know, I think the Mario 64 doesn't have widescreen. I think, you know, just little nitpicks like that, where it's kind of even Nintendo, even recently who had leaks come out, Mm -hmm. um, still can't do a good job at kind of porting their own IP at this stage. Do you have any comments on that one? Yeah, well, actually, I thought you were going to bring up the fact that it was only going to be on sale for 60 days. Well, that's the other one. I had to get my uh, you know, pre-order in straight away for the physical <laughs> release. Uh, I might even get a digital version. Who knows? But that's another typical Nintendo move that they... Because I haven't played Sunshine since like 2001 or whatever when it came out. Um, haven't played probably 64 in that time. And I haven't played Galaxy since it came out. And it's only available now for six months. It's a bit of a joke. Yeah, it's a really very interesting strategy. And I don't know if it's... I I honestly don't know why they would do that other than to hopefully front load as many sales as possible. I don't... Yeah, it's just it just kind of boggles my mind that they would put a self-imposed um, kind of expiration date on their on their sales especially when we're talking about games of, of, of that magnitude. Um, but uh, to your to your earlier question, uh, I want to say that when we released Turok on the Switch, uh, that was the first N64 era game that had been available on that platform. I know. Yeah, that's the thing, because I was actually looking after the fact. I was like, okay, so you have Turok and Turok 2 and Doom 64 now, that are the Nintendo 64 games, but there isn't actually much more. Like that was sort of my halcyon console, you could say, and gaming, because uh, I, I never did PC gaming or anything like that. And I'm like, Nintendo, come on, have your online Nintendo 64. Maybe that's what they're lining up for to have a limited release for 60, Mario 64 and stuff, that they're going to have an online 
platform, like emulated platform that they have for the Super Nintendo and NES as well. Yeah, so, like almost like a, a Nintendo 64 Mini. Is that where you're kind of getting at? Yeah, even the Mini if it was hardware, but also I think if they ha- if they did it on the Switch like they have done for the Super Nintendo and the mm. uh, NES, like I think it, even if it was like you can download them for a five or a tenner each, um, they'd be just printing money, I think, because I know people who collect Nintendo 64 games. Like, it's a very beloved console, even though it didn't really sell that much. Yeah, I, you know, I think that, um, you know, I'll just promote, I'll just put us out there. It's like Nintendo, come and talk to us because we've kind of mastered the the N64 era game, and we can, you know, <laughs> we we can cut put the same amount of polish um on your stuff as we as we have with both Turok and, and Doom. Um and I think that's what people would probably really appreciate is that they took the time and they they took the effort to uh not only make them playable but you know to make them feel the way uh they remembered them being. Um yeah. as opposed to kind of the clunky, you know, maybe slower um, more choppy experience that that we actually had, and re- really blurry experience as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it kind of bums me out to hear that if if that's the case with Super Mario sixty four especially because I thought that it would be something along the lines of what we've done. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, you definitely need a significantly bigger budget, but not not much. And I mean, if we're talking Nintendo, it's you know what we spent developing Turok was, is like a rounding error for them on their financials. Yeah, exactly. Just even let you guys do like a proof of concept. Well, you have done the proof of concept. You've done four games now mm-hmm. so far. So Well, you know, what's funny is because of that leak, you know, I'm not going to say we're going to do this, but we could, we could probably make a proper version of uh, Super Mario 64 <laughs> and uh and pitch it to them but you know the exact same thing's going to happen as as what happened with uh with id uh with their dangerous dave and and copyright infringement thing yeah yeah um i don't know if you know that story but they they basically ported uh super mario on nes to to pc and they sent it to nintendo thinking oh well this is our ticket in there's they're definitely going to do this and they sent them like a cease and desist (laughs) i know they're they're very protective yeah (laughs) it's quite bad but um it wouldn't be a 2020 podcast now at this stage if uh, i didn't ask about how has the global pandemic affected uh the workflow and the working is everyone working remote now or how are you guys coping well, um, it's an interesting question because uh, ever since you know we were founded, we've we've been entirely remote. Okay. So we were kind of doing this the 2020 thing um, back Before in 2012. It was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's really been it's been a kind of a blessing in disguise because our you know our operation hasn't slowed down at all, and and in fact, I would say it's accelerated because. Uh, we've been able to recruit a lot of people that um, either lost their jobs or uh, didn't want to work in a studio setting anymore and wanted to be remote. Um, and they fit right in with us. Mm. Uh, so I'm, 
I consider ourselves very lucky. And um, <laughs> the other thing is, there was a there was a time a couple of years ago where we were looking at uh, publishing deals from larger AAAs, and you know they would talk to us over the phone. And they'd say, "Okay, well, we next step we'd like to come visit your studio and you know talk to your employees." And I go, "Uh, well, you know, you can come to my house and you could talk to me, but um, everybody else is remote." And the conversations would almost entirely go dead at that point. They'd be like, okay, well, we're not interested. We don't believe that, um, you know, a remote working environment is, is even doable, uh, which was mm. a little insulting because we were shipping games. I mean, we were doing it. Um, yeah. But, but since then, um, since everybody's had to go remote, we, those same studios have come to us and they've gone, um, how did you guys do that? Uh, we need help uh, basically getting everybody set up and, you know, working remotely. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's kind of funny, but on the same side, it's kind of like, well, you know, you, <laughs> you could have treated us a little bit better um, seeing as we're still around and we're still, you know, making stuff and, and, you know, you're in the situation that we were, we just didn't want to go to a studio. We didn't want to um, spend time traveling. We didn't want to spend time, away from our families if we didn't have to. We, we have lives and we know that we can get our work done around that if, if given the freedom. Um, yeah, no, so. definitely. Yeah, because I suppose I, I was asking about that because actually to your point that you're working remotely and you are still working, uh, there was definitely a lot of pushback with the company I'm working for initially before the pandemic of, oh, you have to give us like a full schedule of what you're working on for the day if you want to work from home, et cetera. But now it's mm -hmm. been over six months, everyone working at the kitchen table. <laughs> As the boss then, how is it that you instinctively, like, did you always trust the employees at the start to get the work done? Or how how does that sort of play in when you're even recruiting people that you that they're just not cashing the paycheck and playing games instead of making them? <laughs> Well, part of the job description is playing games as well. So <laughs> that's uh, only play testing. That's something different. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you you got to put a certain level of <clears throat> of trust into your employees, anyways, even if they are uh, working at the office. But you know, one of my biggest pet peeves when I was at Sony is, you know, I'd be left to my own devices for a couple hours at a time, but I'd always have a producer coming around just you know, asking me what I'm doing and poking around and making small, small chat and our small talk. And it's just, it got annoying. It's like, just let me work, you know, just let me get my job done. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to be friends. I don't want to do this. I want to get my job done so I can, you know, go home. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think, I think most of the people in the industry are kind of like that. Um, I do really miss the camaraderie you know, meeting people face to face and well, you know, most of the time, uh, like lunch breaks, you know, hanging out and playing foosball or whatever and, yeah. and not working. So yeah, it's, it's difficult. Um, sometimes like, um, the, the very first guy that I hired, uh, this guy named Daniel from the UK, um, the first time I met him was like two years ago. So he had been working for me for like six years and I had never oh, seen nice. him before. And uh, 
I had him fly out for GDC and, and met him for the first time. And it was like, I've, I've listened to his voice for countless hours, but yeah. I didn't like have a face to go with it. And uh, it was really bizarre, but also uh, just a great moment, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I kind of danced around your question there a little bit. I, you know, everybody goes through a little bit of a, uh, like a, a break in period where they'll, they'll be hired and they'll be doing some work. And, and um, this has only happened once, but we only had one guy who after like a week or two, he's like, I'm sorry, I just can't do this. And he quit. Okay. Uh, He just couldn't handle the remote situation for whatever reason. I don't know. You know, I didn't really get into it with him as as to why there may have been some other issues, but um, everybody that we've brought on and, you know, we're nearing close to 30 people now. Um, has kind of just fit right in and, and has really um, taking a liking to it. And, uh, you know, it's uh, there's there's a camaraderie, but it's just different. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Because I suppose seeing as you've always been working remote, that brings me to the next question. What's a typical day for Mr. Kick around the home office then? Well, um a lot has changed since uh, since we had our son, <laughs> um, but it's all still more or less the same. Um, you know, I get up in the morning, I get my cup of coffee, uh, I have breakfast with the family, and then um, I'll either take the dog for a walk, and then when I get home, I'll hop on Discord and I'll meet with my uh, head of biz dev, and we'll talk about uh, the things that we got to do today and the, the calls that we've got contracts we get assigned, whatever. And then I'll just kind of uh, either just chat via text uh, to some of the, the leads on the various teams to see how things are going. Um, but uh, we only have two meetings a week. We've got uh, one on Monday, uh, which is with the System Shock remake team. Yeah. And then we've got one on Tuesday, which is with the Kex Engine team, which specializes in all the uh, the remasters and the ports. Yeah. Um, and then basically, you know, we've got a schedule and, um, I pretty much just leave everybody up to, to getting it done. And, um, and that's pretty much it. I mean, uh, a lot has changed in my life over the last couple of years before, um, uh, you know, some of our, our bigger successes, I was doing a lot of the, you know, the artwork and stuff myself, yeah. um, in terms of like the marketing art, um, writing the descriptions for the games, um, actually pushing the builds to Steam and to GOG myself. I used to do all the accounting as well, but that just got to be um, way too time consuming. Uh, so like, you know, I hired a, a, a company to handle all the accounting and, and um, you know, it, a lot of it has just become uh, about uh, delegation. Like what, mm. what, do, what am I not really good at that I'm spending too much time on and who can I find to do it better and for less money than what it's costing me to, to not do my primary job. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of been, I think one of my secrets to success is just finding people that are smarter than me, people that are, um, more talented than me and, and paying them to do the job. Um, instead of trying to do it all myself, because it's, you know, at a certain stage, it just becomes unrealistic. And um, you start to realize that, you know, your skill set is, is 
very specific and, and you should be focusing on that, you know, as much as you can throughout the day um, to ensure that the studio just keeps running smoothly. Yeah, no, definitely. But you forgot one crucial thing that you do day to day is fend off uh, sweaty nerds like me trying to get an interview off you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like I've never turned down an interview opportunity, no matter how big or how small the that's a monkey's paw now, Stephen. <laughs> you, you might be inundated. <laughs> I know. Well, sometimes it takes me a it takes me a while. Like um, I just did a written interview for um, M1E1, the new um, shooter retro shooter magazine that's uh, going to be premiering on Kickstarter. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I was like, sure, I'll do it. And they sent me like, you know, twenty questions, and. I'm thinking to myself, oh, do I just, you know, kind of throw a softball and just do, you know, one, two sentences? And I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to write like basically a short story, you know, for each of these questions. And um, I kind of had fun with it, but it took me like three weeks to finish. Uh, but yeah, so I, I, I love, I love doing these, uh, these interviews and, um, I love hearing all the stories, you know, about you uh, meeting up with an old friend and playing games with your dad. Like that's the stuff that uh, that really makes it worth it for me. Yeah. And I, I think it is important to sort of get that feel like that's, as I said, why I like reaching out to people, because just as someone who, you know, I obviously I'm producing content to an extent here as well. It's, it's always great to hear the feedback because sometimes I think you can feel like you're just shouting against a wall, I'd say. And sometimes <laughs> I. I imagine you might feel the same if you're kind of not getting much feedback, but I've been lurking in the discord and it does seem like you have a very vibrant community on there as well. So that's great to see. Oh yeah. I, everybody in our discord channel is just, they're just so supportive and they give really, really great feedback on uh, just about everything. And uh, yeah, I do, I do chime in every once in a while, but I do read a lot of it. Um, and it's it's really valuable stuff, and I think that's uh, you know an, another really valuable part about uh, just kind of this day and age is that we've got that kind of access to our community. Um, originally, when when we were revamping the website, I'm like, oh yeah, I want like a forum, you know, um, and we started that, and it was just uh, I don't know, it just didn't it felt too old school. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, I. I I'm a member of a bunch of different forums online and um, a lot of the times I don't have the opportunity to like read a whole thread in order to write like a cohesive, you know, nuanced response. Um, But I can hop in discord and I can read through, you know, 50 lines of of text real quick and then just kind of add my two cents. And then, you know, it's a lot more accessible. Yeah, no, definitely. No, because I have a, admittedly a bit of a small discord myself and it's always just great to chat with people who are just into it because the more channels you have and obviously you know your own discord but it's good to have like the nuance in the different ones so mm-hmm. you can it's almost sub communities as well like i definitely notice it in different discords where you see the same names popping up under x banner and then it's the other 10 people in b banner we'll say um but Without all the highs that we're talking about, we must talk about the lows, Stephen. What's been some of the biggest challenges and difficulties that you've had? Have you ever nearly thrown in the towel at any stage? Oh, man. Um, I've, I've never gotten to a point where I've 
thrown in the towel. I mean, the situation with, with no one lives forever is, um, is a good example of just the challenge, um, evolving and, um, just being patient is a big part of it. But, uh, in terms of challenges, I mean, I think the, the, Oh, the worst one was just dealing with um, the System Shock remake and and kind of the path that it went on after the funding was successful. Um, I just kind of got swept up in the not only the success, but with the various personalities that we had brought on um, as a result of that success. And letting them kind of run the show and steer the ship into um, uncharted waters, so to speak. Um, and then getting to a point where, um, you know, you're, you're asking them what the plan is and, and there's no answer and, you know, there's nothing to show for the work that's been done over the past, you know, three, four months and, and then feeling that panic set in and, and, and thinking that, you know, this could, conceivably be the end of of my company there was probably a good i would say a good six months where i just couldn't sleep at night knowing the the kind of um the trouble that we were in and the uncertainty um and then just trying to pull it together and and um set the game back on the on the right path and and making some big kind of executive decisions and then eventually just taking over the project on my own. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's like a, that's a whole chapter of my life and a whole chapter of the company that I, I'm going to have to really go and revisit, um, some other time, uh, because there's a lot of, a lot of pieces and a lot of, uh, characters in that play. Uh, but that was definitely the most challenging one. Um, mostly when we, announced that uh, we were going to like basically go on a break yeah we were going to cease development and um, kind of reevaluate what was going on and, and figure out where we went wrong and in reality um, you know when I said hiatus which literally means just like a pause um, everybody just assumed that the game was going to be canceled that's just and, the internet for you though isn't it <laughs> yeah I mean this is a big lesson on on just choosing the correct uh, verb, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I got I got slammed with uh, press, um, angry Kickstarter backers, um, random people who were just just wanted to hit me while I was down, kind of stuff, which really sucked because uh, you know when you're when you're looking at any video game, you you sometimes fail to see the the group of people behind it, um, the creatives and the designers and and everybody involved. I mean, they're they're doing it because they love it and they they want to make something great and they want to do something that you're going to enjoy and appreciate and and be entertained by. And um, a lot of the times, it's because it's so nebulous. Um, people will kind of just attack. Uh, without thinking, without thinking of the consequences of their words and, and, and what that actually means to the people behind the scenes. Because uh, yeah, a lot no. of the times it's not their fault, right? I mean, in this case, I, I 
obviously took full responsibility because I'm the boss. I'm the one that, that made all this happen. I'm the one who made the decisions that put certain people in certain roles that, you know, eventually kind of imploded. Um, it's all on me. And I, and I took that responsibility uh, because I knew that I could fix it. But that's, you don't see that. You could read it, but you don't see it. And then a lot of people just want to jump to conclusions, especially when it's somebody who's had some success. They, a lot of people cheer for failure. Oh, you, you see that the length and breadth of the world right now. People want to see the, it burn at this stage, it looks like. Yeah. Um, Kick and people I, while they're down. I, you know, I understand it. I understand it. I don't take part in it, but I get it. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a part in, in all of our brains in our, in our lizard brain, you know, that, that wants to see somebody who's, who's achieving something fail. And it's such a, a weird place to be in because, um, all we wanted to do was just make a really great game. And I was willing to kind of pull the veil back and admit defeat um, only so that I could, you know, make the promise that moving forward, we would be more transparent about what was going on um, and that we were going to go back to the original vision that we had pitched in the Kickstarter and we were going to deliver the game that we promised. Yeah. And again, you know, I got, I got some death threats and I got the, Better, Better Business Bureau called on me and, you know, there were some people that were trying to get a class action lawsuit together. And it's like, do, do you guys have anything better to do? Like, um, I understand that you back this project, but Kickstarter is not a, it's not a pre-order system. It's not, you're not buying anything. You are donating your money. And as long as we made a, you know, a conscientious a serious effort in trying to deliver what we promised that's that's all that we're held accountable for mm. right so those are just the facts um but again like i i promised that this was going to happen and it's going to happen um and and the reality of all that was that i had already made the changes on the team necessary and was already rebuilding the game a month before I just I made that announcement, so we are already on our way to 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 fixing the issue, but you know we couldn't we couldn't announce it that way. We couldn't say we're starting over. We had to say we fucked up. We're sorry. Um, we're going to do everything we can to to make this right. Please stand by while we you know get something together to prove it. Yeah, of course. So, well- yeah. yeah, you set me up now. For, you've set me up for a nice segue now because this week, I'm not too sure, this episode might come out a little bit after the fact, hmm. but uh, Realms Deep is coming up, the 3D Realms conference. It's going to be over on Twitch or was over on Twitch, depending. You do have some System Shock news for that, I believe. Coming yeah. Up. Oh, yeah. We, um, we've been working really, really hard and um, we're ready to show off the first glimpses of cyberspace, which was um, a very interesting part of the original game. You know, if, if you don't know what it is, um, definitely look it up. Um, there's some videos on, on YouTube, but uh, it's almost hard to describe. It's, a, it's, it's almost like a mini game within the game where you're flying around in what can only be described as um, like 
a transparent level uh, with just a grid uh, running over it that's shifting colors. So it's very like uh, Tron-esque. Sure, uh, yeah. Um, but the original game, it was uh, notoriously hard to control. It was confusing. It was frustrating. Um, it was hard to navigate. It was probably the worst part of the game. And so we've completely overhauled that whole thing. And uh, yeah, we're we're premiering the uh, the video tomorrow to to show off what we've been working on. Um, because it's not going to be just a uh, like a footnote in our game. It's going to be a, a major integral part of the experience. Great. Well, you use the word tomorrow. I'm already in tomorrow. So is that Sunday the 6th? Sunday the 6th, yes. <laughs> Super. Yeah, I'm already in Sunday. <laughs> I'm a time traveler. Um, no, that's great news. And do you have any other uh, things coming for the Realms Deep conference for the rest of the week? Yeah, and um, if you, you know... If you miss Realms Deep, um, you can just go to our YouTube channel and we'll have all the trailers up there uh, on the 6th at about 5 o'clock. And they're going to be premiering uh, about every 15 minutes um, from each other. And, and we've got a bunch. So uh, along with the cyberspace preview, we've got a behind-the-scenes featurette of our lead visual effects artist um, talking about a really special tool that has been created to... Uh, streamline the dismemberment system that we've created for System Shock. Um, that's really, really cool. Uh, along with that, we've got a update on our enhanced edition of Blade Runner. We've got a trailer for Strife, the id tech-powered uh, Doom RPG shooter for a Nintendo Switch. Woohoo! Yeah. And uh, we've got a update teaser trailer for Shadowman Remastered as well. So it's is that yeah, coming to Switch too? It is. It'll be on Nintendo Switch. Absolutely. Well, I'll be paying for a couple of coffees for you. So <laughs> once I download those, <laughs> so that's all great news. Um, so one last question then for you today, really, what would be your desert island game then of all time? If you had one game to choose, what would you pick? Oof, you know, I've never thought about this before. Putting you on the spot now, I'll edit out the uh, the silence. <laughs> yeah. Um, hmm. I'm trying to think if I would want a game that just had like an insane amount of replayability. I was speaking with uh, G-Man Lives last week. He said Doom. Cause there's so many <laughs> he said so many mods and stuff on it. So you could replay forever. Well, you know what? Since you mentioned G-Man, I will say it's going to be uh, Stalker, <laughs> Shadow of Chernobyl. <laughs> yes, I, I know you're a fan. Is that where Pripyat Beast comes from? That's where that comes from, yeah. Absolutely. Great. Because I remember seeing that when it was about to come out, and it was like, oh my God, photorealistic Chernobyl. It looks amazing. Mm -hmm. Um so I guess you're a big fan of... <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so I won't get into it too much, but the reason I said G-Man is because probably about, oh, man, three years ago, uh, he was testing out a new interview platform for his YouTube channel, and sure. he had me on there. And he brought up Stalker, and I ended up talking about Stalker for like an hour. He and warned me. He did warn me. He did. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's so funny and uh he never released that episode and so it's become like a you know long time running joke that uh yeah if you ever want to hear about uh my love of of stalker uh all you got to do is ask <laughs> Right. Well, we're swiftly running out of time today. So I think just as a little gag, do you have uh, Twitter open right now? I can open it. Yeah. I'm going to send you the uh, episode art. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I got it. And if you if you don't enjoy it on air, then I'm going to have to edit this out. But I'm going to send that to you now. Just see. Oh, boy. I'm surprised it hasn't been done before. I'm surprised too. <laughs> so that's what I'll be using. Awesome. That's great. I, I fully approve. Excellent. Yeah, I was going to ask, did you approve of that one? And I suppose we definitely could talk for hours more today, Stephen, but um, it has been an absolute pleasure. I, I know I don't want to keep you on your Saturday night your free time in the evening is sacred as I I know you just put down the young fellow to bed. (laughs) Um, So I do appreciate your time today. Uh, Where can people find you online if they want to see more things, uh, Stephen kick and night dive? Oh yeah. Just uh, follow us on Twitter. It's actually at night dive studio. We ran out of characters there. Um, and then, yeah, come to nightdivestudios.com and click the Discord link and, and hop in and, yeah, let's chat. Super. Well, guys, um, that has been another episode of the Bizarre Cast. Uh, Stephen, thank you very much for coming on today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And hopefully once all these restrictions lift and I make my way into the war-torn Washington State <laughs> by the by the time uh, this all comes under President Trump's third presidency. <laughs> oh no! I'll I'll leave the politics uh, for another day. Uh, Stephen, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. So everyone, that has been another episode of the Bizarre Cast. Uh, reach me at the Bizarre Cast or personal at the Fear Merchant. Join the Discord, and until next time, stay safe. Take it easy, and we'll see you in the next episode. End of line.